2014 Faith Forward podcast series. The following presentation was recorded live at the 2014 Faith Forward Gathering, which was held in Nashville, Tennessee. On May 19th through the 22nd of that year, hundreds of conversation partners from across the globe and spanning dozens of denominational traditions gathered to question, share, and be inspired to reimagine ministry with youth and children. This podcast episode features Melvin Bray's presentation at this gathering, which he titled, Dark Matter, Disenchantment, and Wild E. Coyote, Why Young People Need Better Sacred Myths. I have the privilege, uh, when my faith community gathers, to be able to tell the story. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing to sit with young people and, and, and just share these sacred myths that have been handed down to us. Um, but uh, the challenge is that so many of them don't work the way they've been handed to us, right? And so I'd like to talk uh, for a few moments today about why we need to reimagine our tellings of uh, our sacred myths, right? Let me take a page from Stephen Covey's playbook and uh, start, uh, begin with the end in mind. Um, my, my goal, whenever I talk about story, uh, telling better stories, is not just to convince the audience to invite me to their churches and to do workshops on, on telling better stories. The goal is to get you, each and every one of you, to go home and begin to tell better stories, right? So if you leave here nodding your head about everything that Sandy said and some of what I've said, but you don't go home and begin to tell more beautiful, more, more, more just, more virtue-filled tellings of the sacred narrative, then, then we've, we've done, we both missed the mark here. So let's start here. That said, how many of you remember, oh, before we, before we go there, let me ask, say this. I'm going to use the word sacred myth over and over again. And, and don't let the word myth throw you, right? Uh, myth does not mean lie, although that's how it's commonly used. Uh, in literature, which my background is language arts education and, 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 and t- teaching literature, uh, in literature, we talk about myth as being the stories around which we organize our lives, right? They are the things that orient, they are the, the tales that orient and ground us. They give us a glimpse of a life worth living, something to aspire to, right? So when we talk about our biblical narrative as sacred myth, we're talking about these are the stories around which Christians and, and, and Jews have for years, hundreds and thousands, uh, hundreds of years in terms of Christians, or a couple thousand years, and, and, and many thousand years in terms of Jews, have or, organized their lives and said, this is, this is what we, we should live towards. All right, so now let me, let me ask this question. How many of you remember uh, Wile E. Coyote? Wile E. Coyote, I don't know how, how popular Wile E. Coyote and, and, and Roadrunner were outside the country, but uh, for, for those of you who don't know, uh, it was really popular for about 50 years, up, at least up into the 80s when I, when I was a kid. Um, and, 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 uh, and, and 
it was all about this roadrunner, or, who, who, or actually this coyote, who used to chase this roadrunner looking for a meal. I mean, golly, man, he chased that roadrunner and chased that roadrunner and chased that roadrunner. Um, in fact, Wally Coyote, every once in a while, he turned his attention towards Bu uh, Bugs Bunny. And uh, in, 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 in whenever he was in the Bugs Bunny cartoon, unlike in, in the cartoon with the Roadrunner, uh, you know, he would be silent in the cartoon with the Roadrunner. But in the Bugs Bunny cartoon, he would always introduce himself as super genius, right? But it, it, it never really worked out. I mean, for all his genius, all his declared genius, he could never get himself something to eat. You know, and I used to feel sorry for this guy. You know, I mean, come on now. I mean, it was as if the, the very laws of, uh, 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 of nature and a fair shake were set against him. You know, even a blind squirrel finds a nut every once in a while. But this cat here, man, he could not get a bite to eat. It was as if Roadrunner and Bugs Bunny were always trickier and cleverer and, and, and just, just faster than he was. And then I realized, Wile E. Coyote's problem wasn't a fundamental unfairness drawn into his two-dimensional world. It wasn't that the pencil gods were set against him. Neither did Wally Coyote's inability to stop his stomach from growling have anything to do with how smart Bugs Bunny or uh, Roadrunner were. Wiley Coyote's hunger pains were all about his own failures of imagination. You howl, like with Wiley Coyote. Because the truth is, you know, if you start thinking back, you'll remember all the things he did, all the really imaginative things he did, man. He, he tried to get on that, that rocket launcher and, and chase, uh, chase him. He'd, he'd have all these, these crazy plans about how this anvil was going to fall down and crush the bird, and it always never fell on the bird, but it would fall on him. You know, I mean, you remember, I mean, there's one time he even put himself in a bow and arrow. You know, to try to shoot himself further so he could get out in front of this guy, you know, so he could finally catch him. He was an imaginative fella, but the problem was the imagination he had, obviously, was not the imagination he needed. For no matter how creative he was in pursuit of his prey, the limits of his ingenuity left him unfulfilled. Meanwhile, Bugs was always chewing on his uh, favorite fetish. You, you remember that carrot? Right? And, 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 and that roadrunner, he had to be eating something. You just can't run that fast that long with, on an empty stump. <laughs> the guy who, uh, who, who invented uh, Wile E. Coyote, who, 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 uh, the creator of Wile E. Coyote and roadrunner, his name is Chuck Jones. And he wrote in his memoir that there were these rules, this list of rules that he would use as he directed the cartoon. And one of the rules was that at any time, the coyote could stop. At any time, he could stop. But the coyote never tried to stop. It, it never even occurred to him. For 60 years, he persisted in this single-minded determination to not in satisfying his need for food, but toward his one or two interpretations that he had fixated on as to what satisfaction meant, right? Wiley is the quintessential fanatic who doubles down on his effort, redoubles his effort when he's forgotten his aim. Wiley could have simply walked away. Or he could have evolved 
like those sharks in Finding Nemo. You remember them? You know, they had that mantra, fish are friends, not food. Right? <laughs> right? I mean, he could have evolved. He could have, he could have, if he had given up on chasing bugs and Roadrunner, he might have been able to, to become collaborators with them, right? And maybe they would have, he, he could have found out what they were eating. Or, or maybe they would have helped him get something else out there in that southwestern desert. But none of that happened. He allows his, his view of himself as genius, like the view of ourselves, as faithful, right? to restrict him to only three alternatives, catch the rabbit, catch the bird, or starve. Now, there are plenty of people who would tell you that this kind of narrowing of focus and, and narrowing of scope and singularity of purpose is requisite for success. All you have to do is Google Wiley Coyote business and you, you, you won't run out of different sites that talk about singularity of purpose. And so that's how we do children's and youth ministry. See, too often we define our goals so narrowly. The kids will be able to give these right answers to these particular questions. Too narrow. My children or our, our youth will be able to exhibit these Christian correct behaviors in these given circumstances. Too narrow. The kids will be able to glean these particular these particular lessons from this set of stories so that they can apply them to their daily lives as if virtue is somehow a can of paint that we apply to our souls. Now here's the thing. Sometimes this myopia works, right? Sometimes this singularity of focus works. The evangelical church has proven itself really good at replicating itself across generations, right? Sometimes it works, but when it doesn't work, it can only cause disillusionment, both for us and for the young people we are trying to disciple. Now, disillusionment can be a good thing if it opens our eyes to options that we otherwise wouldn't have considered. But quite often, that's not the case. It just makes us cynical, right? It disenchants young people's view of what is possible and waiting to be discovered in the world. It limits them to only what is as we as a church community have defined it. Cynics see what isn't, but, is, but they are blind to what can be, as, as Ivy talked about the other day. If we don't want our children to grow up cynical, I would argue that we've got to give them better sacred myths, more beautiful, more just, more virtuous tellings of the biblical narrative to enchant their way, right? Now, I know kids, I, 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 most of the young people I've worked with are high school age, and I know kids who have, have pretty much given up on religion, but they're not atheists, even though they'll claim that in order to avoid further conversation. They're really cynics, right? They, 
what they've given up on is the sorry, self-interested, self-serving caricatures to which we've asked them to pledge their fidelity come what may, no matter how nonsensical or unjust demands of, of, of commitment become. The psychic dissonance caused by trying to hold on to the so-called right way of thinking while everything around you and within you is suggesting that there are better ways of being in the world can in time wear a person out. Our young people become disenchanted particularly as they step into that college age. It's as if all the magic in the world is, is, is drained out of them. Now, disenchantment can take a lot of forms. It, it, it's not just to, to hell with it. You know, in fact, more often than not, the disenchantment I see uh, in the church is a disenchantment that includes people who are, what, what would be the best way of describing them? They continue to hold on to their, the myths that have been handed down to them, the way they have been handed down to them, and they continue to tell those stories in those same ways, even though they check out at arbitrary places, right? I'll give you an example. We've all seen it. You know those folk who are looking for fire insurance, right? So they do that two hours on the weekend, every weekend while the rest of their life during the rest of the week has nothing to do with what we say faith is about, right? So you know those people. This is all an example of a cynical life, cynical faith life. And then there's this kind of disenchantment that is more like what I do, this idea of uh, naming what I see as nonsense before I have a name, for what people, what, what, what I would suggest people do in its place. <laughs> it's a pretty crappy thing, you know, to suck all the magic out of someone's life before you've even given any thought to how we, we're going to cast a better spell together, right? And by the way, this is why quite often when we try to get young people to expand their view and, and, and they take the risk, but then... When, when, when they don't know where to go and when we don't know where to lead them, they go back and they dig in deeper to that old thing, right? This is why we need poets. This is why we need storytellers. This is why we need musicians and sculptors and artists who can show us, who can continue to show us more than just what is. Now, I don't mean to suggest that cynicism is something that is limited to the narrow confines of the halls of faith, right? Because it's not. It would appear that, uh, uh, that less religious inhabitants of late modernity are equally, if not more, spent on a world in which every attempt has been made to explain everything, leaving no mystery or room for being proven absolutely wrong. Nowadays, even, uh, even highly... Uh, respected scientists like uh, Mar Mario Liv Livio, who is the head of the Hubble of the Hubble Space Program, he himself not a religious man. He confesses that with everything science presumes to have figured out, some new mystery manifests. One of the biggest being this matter of dark matter, a reality we know little about, but seems to occupy more space in the known universe than anything else. 
So think about this. Livio's comment suggests that even for the irreligious, a world divested of the magic of mystery, the expectation that there is always more to discover, and that's what stories give us, according to what Sandy said. A world divested of the expectation that there is always more to discover is a pretty cartoonish world. And interestingly enough, other than the world in which we live. Such a world itself is a failure of imagination, right? So, that's the bad news. The good news is this. If the problem is a lack of imagination, then the appropriate response would be to reimagine again, right? And that's what our conference is about. Now, reimagining as, is a term, as a term is, uh, when I say it, I, what I mean is I'm talking about affirmative critique or adaptive reuse rooted in a deep appreciation of the best intuitions that came before us, right? So by affirmative, I mean we're building on the past, not rejecting it, right? So the way that works out in me is even though some of you came to the last, to, to, to the last uh, faith forward back when it was children, youth, and a new kind of Christianity, you may remember that even though I may, may disagree with MLK a little bit about his passive nonviolent resistance and, and, and long for a more active nonviolent resistance, as I reimagine that, I would never call him short-sighted. Right? I would never refer to, 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 to him as misguided. Reimagining is also me getting to almost the end of my theological degree and then deciding that I needed to learn something about the people I felt I was called to. So I went into education, right? Reimagining has taken place in my life when uh, in my first, uh, my first assignment as a teacher, the LGBTQ kids decided to embrace me and to love me before I knew how to embrace and love and appreciate them because of my fundamentalist upbringing, right? And it reminded me of something that my, my, my stepfather had said to me when I was getting in the car going off to school, and he said to me, Melvin, if you're going to be a minister of the gospel, then you're going to have to be willing to minister to everybody. And that's amazing coming from him because he was deeply fundamentalist, right? Reimagining in my life has taken the form of, I, I remember hearing Dick Gregory, the comedian, one day, and he was explaining how uh, he used to have some issues with his daughters. Now, he sent his daughters to all prep schools, right, and, and, and that, where they were in the minority, and you, he used to have issues when they'd come home dating white guys, right, until he realized that he had spent his career helping to create a world where people were judged by the color, of, not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And when I heard that, that helped me get over my little last hangups around interracial dating. The point is that who I am now isn't disconnected from who I was. It's in a reimagined version of that where I have to, had to let go of some things, some ways of thinking, some ways of being in the world in order to embrace some new 
better ways of being in the world. So, if we're going to reimagine our stories, or the way we tell our sacred narratives, we have to figure out where are we going to start. And this is what I would suggest. Reimagining is done best when it's done within the context of a community, right? When it's done based on some shared values, some shared virtues. And those shared virtues are found all throughout Scripture. You can talk about the, the, spirit, the fruits of the Spirit. You can talk about uh, 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 the, the Sermon on the Mount. You can talk about Paul when he, when, when, he, when he says, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are just, if there be any virtue, any praise, think on these things. These are our common virtues, and these are the spaces from which we then get to reimagine. And when we do that, when we, when we start in that space, we give it the credibility of seeking to better live out our best ideals. So, some may ask you when you go back home, all right, so you went to this conference on, on reimagining story. What justification do you have for reinterpreting our scriptures? And Sandy talked about, you know, I mean, this thing is as old as religion itself. You know, Midrash and Targum, which are two Jewish traditions of reinterpreting and reinterpreting, has, has been around for a while. But even within the Christian tradition, we've been doing this as long as we've been alive. We've been doing it. You, we might not think about it this way, but each new denomination is an attempt to reinterpret or reimagine the previous one. Each one is a new interpretive tradition. So now that we're in this place where we're being challenged to reimagine anew so that our children are able to use these virtues that we have in order to face the challenges of their of life as they know it, right? We are, we, it's just a continuation of what has been. So let me bring this thing home. There's a missiologist by the name of Joseph Campbell. Joseph Campbell said that the most important work that we have to do in this day and age is reimagine our myths. Because if we choose not to, they become what he called petrifacts. They have no relationship to the world as it presents itself, and myth serves a particular function in our lives, helping us make sense of the world. He said that it's kind of like this. It's kind of like looking at an old map of where you live now. When we tell the stories the way they were, exactly the way they were handed down to us, exactly the way they were told a thousand years ago. And we don't include in our telling of the stories things we've learned since then, right? For example, you know, when the stories were originally told, right, uh, women were considered subservient to men. So we have all these stories in scripture that put women in service to men in ways that are demeaning and demoralizing. And, and, and So if we continue to tell the story that way, if we don't question Abraham's raping Hagar, if we don't question 
Noah's wife's name being left out of the narrative. If we don't question this idea of, of uh, go into all the land and kill everything you see, that's not like you. If we don't question these things, then it's kind of like looking at a map, an old map of where you live. You, you won't find your house on it, right? You won't find anything on it that, that, that will orient you to the world that you have to relate to now. You may recognize some landmarks, but you'll have to continue to explain to yourself what, where those landmarks are in relationship to the things that matter to you. And this is what Joseph Campbell says, a mythological image that has to be explained to the brain is of no use to a person. So if we want our kids to value, if we want our young people to value these sacred myths that have mattered so much to us all these years, then we have to go and reconsider how we share them, reimagine how we share them, so that then they will have some resonance in their lives and, the, and our children will have reason to want to hear the rest of the story. The contents of this podcast episode are reproduced by permission of the presenter and Faith Forward, under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivations Copyright. The Faith Forward podcasts are produced by Dave Sinis. Stay tuned for more episodes of the 2014 Faith Forward podcast series on the web at faith-forward.net. And join us in Chicago for the 2015 Faith Forward gathering April 20th through 23rd.